When I was a kid, I used to picture life in the Soviet Union. I imagined long lines of people dressed in gray clothing, under a dreary sky, waiting to buy the one thing the shops had to offer. It was the Cold War, and we Americans were told communism didn't work, and the lack of consumer goods, constant shortages, and the general absence of stuff was a big reason why. But things were never so simple. Yeah, the USSR didn't have as much stuff as America did. The USSR lost every time toe-to-toe -to -toe against the US in the standard of living race. Every time. That is, if America chose all the rules of the race right down to the running shoes. The real or imagined state of Soviet consumerism is not the point, yet. The point is that Americans judged the USSR through it. We connect the ability to buy stuff, as much as you wanted, whether you needed it or not, as a mark of prosperity and freedom. If a country didn't allow for unfettered consumption, it was neither prosperous nor free. But it's kind of perverse if you think about it, that if we choose between, I don't know, several brands of soap means we're free. Yet my American lizard brain tells me consumer choice equals freedom, and no consumer choice means unfreedom. It feels so natural. Remember the KGB report on Teddy Rowe in episode two? Teddy gauged Soviet life and economy through the consumer lens, as did many Soviet citizens. And this weak spot concerned the Soviet authorities. The KGB report, as read by Teddy, accused him of gathering information on the Soviet standard of living. also collected information on the economic situation of our country as evidenced by the following diary entries. Go to the stores and you'll see that the production and distribution of goods do not correspond to each other. The quality is usually very poor. The quality of goods such as electrical appliances is the same as it was in the West 10 years ago. The Soviet authorities begrudgingly understood the importance of consumption and they tried to address this hunger in the 1960s and 1970s. And despite all the problems in the command economy, Soviet citizens were consuming more than they'd ever had before. They were becoming consumers, just like billions of people around the world. And by the late 1960s, the ability to have things was part of the Soviet dream, too. I'm Sean Guillory, your guide on this journey, and this is Teddy Goes to the USSR, Episode 3, Teddy goes shopping. Act one, selling America. Now I'm gonna put Teddy aside for a bit and give some context. All Americans were conditioned by Cold War propaganda. American opinion about the Soviets was just too consistent for it to be otherwise. And when it came to stuff, how much stuff the Soviet Union produced, how much stuff Soviet citizens could buy, and how much stuff Soviet citizens consumed was measured not by Soviet standards, but by American ones. The Cold War wasn't just a great geopolitical game. It was also about ways of life and capturing hearts and minds. The standard of living race was a key contest, and to win it, the American way had to be sold. But what did it mean to sell America? Selling the American way was the effort the United States government put forth in the late 40s through the early 60s, really, to fashion a outward-facing narrative about what it meant to be American 
and why that was superior to being aligned with the communist world. This is Laura Belmonte. She's a historian at Virginia Tech and author of Selling the American Way, U.S. Propaganda and the Cold War. She says propagandists tasked with selling America abroad saw their brand as self-evident. America simply sold itself. One of the key themes of propaganda in this era is what was often called the campaign of truth, that we could show America, warts and all, and that it would still be better than Stalinist Russia. Really being able to say, you know, even if you were a blue collar worker, you'd be able to buy your own home. So there's lots of aspects of the material and the immaterial that are fused together in this master narrative that this is all the ways in which your life will be better if you reject communism. Selling America was new in the 1950s. Sure, American exceptionalism had a long history. You know, the United States as the shining city on the hill and all that. But the idea of America, and here I'm flashing scare quotes, as a commodity was a new twist that dovetailed with the U.S.'s new superpower status. So, for the first time, the U.S. government turned to crafting and promoting propaganda for an international audience to combat the Soviet appeal in the developing world. And that if we are going to protect democracy and capitalism and America's interests, that we have to compete in that realm as well. The result was the creation of the United States Information Agency, or USIA. It is ideas that change the world for good or ill. The USIA deals in ideas. USIA tells the world about peace. And, the... and um, when Dwight Eisenhower became president, he was someone who was a real proponent of psychological warfare. So he pushed for the creation of a separate government agency, the U.S. Information Agency, that became the central place that the overt campaigns we were launching were, were housed and, and created. As the armed forces deal with defense, as the State Department deals with diplomacy, the USIA works with words and ideas. And this really became a, a kind of integral element of U.S. foreign relations in uh, the early Cold War era. The United States wasn't just looking to win hearts and minds in Europe and the decolonizing world. The Soviet Union itself was a key target, and showcasing American consumerism was a focal point in that effort. And nothing spoke to the stakes in the standard of living race like the infamous kitchen debate in the summer of 1959. Vice President Nixon escorts Soviet Premier Khrushchev on a preview of the United States Fair at Skolniki Park in Moscow. It's the official opening of the American Exposition. And so there is a treaty signed in 1958, the East-West Agreement, that one of the provisions of it is that the Soviets have the opportunity to host an exhibit of their own cultural uh, achievements and political system in, in the United States, and the United States would get the opportunity to do the same thing. So in May of 1959, the Soviets have their exhibit in New York. The 
And it really is kind of a flop. You know, they come in with a lot of the things they're really proud of, like a real focus on kind of heavy industry. Whereas the United States, they get all these American companies to agree to donate products and they build an American model house, which is furnished by American companies like JCPenney. They have a a frozen food exhibit. Parker Brothers sends games uh, for people to see how Americans recreate. But on this occasion, traditional diplomacy goes by the board. And the story of the fair itself is eclipsed by a crackling exchange between Nixon and Khrushchev. In the model house, there's this very you know, elaborately outfitted American kitchen. And so Nixon really tries to make this an opportunity to highlight why the American way of life is superior. And Khrushchev, of course, is very dismissive of this, saying... Says Mr. King, the Soviet will overtake America and then wave (laughs) bye-bye. And of course, at the end of it, they they can't really agree on whose way of life is better. So they decide to to toast to the ladies, because I guess they agree that they all like women. And it becomes this kind of quintessential expression of this larger cultural cold, cold war. American propaganda against Soviet lack was based on a rather naive assumption. The exposure to Soviet citizens to capitalist abundance would defeat communism. Norman K. Winston, a special advisor to the American National Exhibition in Moscow, pretty much said exactly this in 1959. We know the life we have is good. By the end of the summer, the millions of Russians who have seen our exhibit will know it too. That experience is going to stir not only hearts, but also desires. Let it. Let the Russians want what we have. Let them clamor for it from their leaders and let the clamor be so loud that it will demand answering. Perhaps then, the Russian leaders to keep their people happy will divert some of their manufacturing facilities from weapons to the production of furniture, electric mixers, and prefabricated homes. Now, Winston could have said this at any point in the Cold War and after. The United States' both inspiration and envy continued to frame American foreign policy thinking. And most Americans then, and now, mechanically nod in agreement. And that's the thing. They also perfectly inform American tropes about Soviet consumption. One is a trope that Soviet consumption is really inferior to the United States. The dire state, the disastrous state of Soviet consumption And this links to another trope, and this is uh, Soviet Union's military strength versus its pathetic daily life. This is Dina Feinberg. You might remember her from episode two. She's a history professor at City College of London and author of Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines. I asked her about American tropes about the Soviet Union and consumerism. Suddenly, the Soviet Union emerges not just like, you know, a country of backward peasants, but a country that has advanced military technology and can put a rocket in space. So they need to reckon with that. And many Americans concerned about this. But then they go, like, no, 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 like, don't worry. Yes, they have Sputniks, but their cars are still rubbish. Uh, yes, they have Sputniks, but they still can't buy what you take for granted in their shops. And therefore, 
There's like a reassuring thing about this. Laura Belmonte told me that the emphasis on American consumer bounty coincided with the fusing of the good life, middle-class suburbia, and capitalism in post-war United States. Just the sheer availability of things like mass-produced housing, different car models that come out every year, uh, all the products you need to outfit your new suburban home. And that becomes very kind of inextricably linked to, you know, the good life in the United States. So they put that out there as emblematic of why capitalism works for ordinary people. And it doesn't take much to see how the good life fit right into the American goal to beat the USSR in the standard of living race. And again, this is the affirmation of America's greatness. So American objects are wanted and desired for the people. But it's also being used to proclaim effectively the failure of the socialist project. Look at these Soviet people. They don't want socialism. They don't want equality. What they really want is blue jeans, Western records, American cars, uh, stockings, whatever. Two, the idea of Eden. In January 1959, Soviet Deputy Prime Minister Anastas Mikoyan took a whirlwind trip to the U.S. Among his stops was the Supergiant Supermarket in White Oak, Maryland. There, American journalists excitingly reported Mikoyan was dazzled by the symbol of American ingenuity, competition, and abundance. Mikoyan was so wowed, the reporters even derisively speculated whether the USSR will now get its own communist-named supermarkets, like Nikita's Nook or Khrushchev's Cozy Corner. And it is not the first time Mikoyan has shown interest in capitalistic innovations. It was he who introduced the Eskimo pie in Moscow. Now he shows interest in any number of items so familiar to the American shopper. Wonder what he'll tell the folks back in Moscow about our land of plenty. But the supermarket wasn't the only totem that impressed Mikoyan. Vending machines, kitchen gadgets, frozen food, plastic, prefab homes, and lightweight furniture also tickled his fancy. It seemed like it was only a matter of time before Muscovite apartments would adopt American tastes. The Cold War message was clear. America wasn't just a place of bounty. America was also an object of Soviet desire and envy, even among its most die-hard communists. In the decade between Mikoyan's U.S. tour and Teddy Rose's Soviet trip, the magic of the West, and America in particular, had only grown in the Soviet consumer imagination. I would say when they compared goods, they compared the prices because that's the first thing that came to mind. Um, they really wouldn't be in a position to know except from maybe tourists would come through and say something or or some of their people would go abroad and come back and say something. They just knew that we were ahead, we stayed ahead, and therefore we must have had better. So just how important was the West? I asked Natalia Chinoshova. She's a senior lecturer in history at the University of Winchester and author of Soviet Consumer Culture in the Brezhnev Era, 
that's um, quite a substantial role, actually. The West is present in Soviet imagination. One phrase I use is the importance of being imported. Um, and this is particularly with reference to clothing, but also all kinds of other things. Don Raleigh, who you met in episode one, emphasizes how the role of traveling abroad, even to Eastern Europe, influenced his friends. Most of my Soviet friends, a good, I should say a good number of them, had gone abroad to Eastern Europe. And that, of course, opened their eyes to so much. Um, it shattered the illusion that they lived so well. They saw how free Poland was. Churches were open. They could watch American films. They were far more than they could in the Soviet Union. Uh, these things made huge impressions on them. I asked him about how his friends viewed him as a visitor from the so-called land of plenty. So their attitudes um, were curiosity and openness. You know, I let's face it, I think for, for some there's a maybe an unrecognized sense that there, there's an inferiority complex because they we're generating the stuff that they want. And we were less interested in uh, their uh, popular culture. As Teddy and I scrolled through the photos he took in the Soviet Union, one of the things that struck me were the clothes and how similar they were to Western fashions. Now, we were told that Russians only wore big fur coats and drab, poorly fitted clothing. But in Teddy's photos, the women wore dresses with colorful floral prints, short skirts and bobbed hair, standard pumps or flats. The men, well, you know, men dressed like men everywhere, button-down shirt and slacks, plain loafers, sometimes a blazer, modestly styled hair to the point of uniformity. Frankly, they all looked indistinguishable from Teddy. So I figured zeroing on fashion was a great way to get a sense of Western influence on Soviet consumerism. Well, you didn't see clothing on sale for the most part. What you found was the yard goods that the women were buying to dress themselves and dress their daughters. It was a huge part of the sales of the department store. I have one reference in there about contrasting yards and yards and yards of yard goods to a couple of racks of ready-made clothing. Here's what Teddy wrote in his diary after visiting a department store in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Now, for the first time, I really get to see the Russian youth, their fashions, their comportment, etc. From this limited exposure, I'm impressed. It's obvious that these kids, especially the girls, have washed their diets. And they pay as close attention to fashion as circumstances will allow. Tonight, I examined carefully the mannequins in the windows of the central department store. The fashionable dresses which were displayed were not tailor-made. Rather, they were draped skillfully on the dummies and pinned in such a way that only a close look could tell the difference. One can safely conclude that the young girls on the street are also dressed in home-tailored fashions, most likely painstakingly assembled by doting mothers. Some of the styles are extremely attractive, and so are many of the girls. They would draw glances on New York or Paris streets as well. So just how influential was Western fashion in the USSR? Moscow. Britain's miniskirts have raised the Iron Curtain an inch or two. 10,000 close-conscious Soviet citizens crowded the Lenin Sports Stadium to usher in a dress revolution unthinkable only a short time ago. Western fashions are, be are becoming much more uh, of an authority on, on what, what to wear um, than the state, despite the, the state's efforts to, uh, to shape the taste. 
even the rising generation is almost fashion crazy. Uh, and the state's efforts in, in terms of shaping consumer taste, shaping consumer behavior, tend to be directed at women. Um, because there's an assumption that the shoppers are female and, and women are the, the group that shop most. But Russia's economic problems have no place at this fashion show that displays models from the Soviet Union to prove that in producing beauties, the USSR bows to no one. East is east and west is west, but a pretty girl everybody wants to meet. Soviet people were increasingly exposed to and influenced by Western fashions. And you've asked about whether the clothing was shop-bought or handmade. Well, it could be both. Um, and the role of private tailors is still quite important in precisely filling that gap that consumers feel there is because they want something that's you know fashionable out there now, but the state is not producing this. And the planned economy struggled to keep up. By the late 1960s, Soviet consumers were not willing to gobble up whatever the state threw at them. They were becoming, like many around the world, conspicuous consumers. People are not willing to spend their money on things that are not fashionable or are not up to their standards. But the state kept on producing them, leaving a large stock of unsold goods. In the early 70s, about half of all unsold merchandise were unfashionable clothes. And that cost the state about 5 billion rubles, which is a substantial blow to the budget, and, and the authorities are starting to pay attention. And you get the Soviet state start promoting fashion as ideologically acceptable, though it cautions against overindulgence. And they're trying to manage people's tastes and expectations. And the late 60s is this very interesting time when all of this beginning is beginning to really you know, become evident and take place and develop. Teddy saw this convergence between the Western consumer and her Soviet counterpart, that the more Soviet consumers' desires grew, the more the system would have to address it. The KGB certainly zeroed in on this view. Here's another passage from Teddy's diary in the KGB report. The voice of the people will undoubtedly be heard stronger and stronger at high-level meetings. They, the people, will demand material improvements in the same way as the citizens demand of the capitalist countries. But it is necessary to increase the production of goods, if not to make any changes in the political system. Believe it or not, authorities began to study demand and conduct marketing research. And this was often done through a sort of top-down approach um, where the shops and wholesale warehouses, uh, they would conduct marketing research and study consumer demand and then feed that information back up. But collecting research on consumer demand was one thing. Taking that information and putting it to use in production was another. The authorities are kind of in the back, uh, back foot to the consumers. And they're, and they're slightly tearing their hair out because this, the command economy is all about planning. And fashion, <laughs> fashion is very difficult to plan. <laughs> because style moved fast. As soon as a new fashion made its way through the bloated command economy... And by that time, the fashion's gone, you know, it moved on. Um, and they're really frustrated. I think partially this is the frustration with Western fashions. It's not only ideological, it's also pragmatic and economic, you know. We can't keep up with this, this will cost us. Act 3. 14 steps for a 15 kopeck purchase. 
There's a photo Teddy snapped of Russians lined up in front of a store. There's about three lines, each 30 people deep. A cashier sits behind a small counter with an abacus next to her. It's hard to tell what the people are buying. One woman is holding out a receipt to the cashier. Another is fumbling through her wallet with one hand as she holds rubles in another. It could all serve as the set for Vladimir Sorokin's 1983 novel, The Q. One of my earliest and most faithful sources of information was simply to go into department stores and see what was selling and how much it was. And the several hurdles a shopper had to jump over just to buy something, anything. Here's how Teddy described in his diary the 14 steps needed to buy something in a Volgograd department store. I was in the store at 11 a.m. on a weekday, so it wasn't too crowded, except for one counter, that is. Customers were standing five and six deep along a long counter in the ladies' shoe department. I felt sorry for those in a hurry, for the following is the procedure one must follow to make a purchase in nearly every Soviet department store. One, fight your way to the counter. Two, attract the eye of the usually disinterested sales personnel. Three, find out if the item is in stock. Four, try it on if necessary. Five, learn its price. Six, fight your way back out of the crowd. Seven, stand in line at the cashier's desk. Eight, pay the cashier and get from her a receipt. Nine, fight your way back to the original counter. 10, attract the eye of the usually disinterested sales personnel. 11, hope the item is still in stock. 12, surrender the cashier's receipt. 13, receive the item. And 14, fight your way back out of the crowd again. All for a 15 kopeck purchase. From the standpoint of consumer goods, I was in a vast third world country. There was a saying in Russia, Russians knew better when to purchase a Soviet-made article. You look for something that was made on a Wednesday or a Thursday. This is from, from them. The workers came back to work after a drunken weekend, and it took them until midweek to sober up. And one or two days later, they were looking forward to the weekend, and they were getting ready by starting to drink again. This was a seriously stated, and um, all I, I offer that in defense of my description of their consumer goods. Teddy didn't mince words. But again, as Dina Feinberg explains, his comments were consistent with American attitudes towards the Soviet shopping experience. Americans just love going to Soviet shops and to describe what the Soviets dress like and what they, what's in the shops and what they eat like and what their daily life looks like. And of course, they are not impressed. Um, a lot of the language to discuss Soviet shops is really uh, caustic and kind of uses very, very strong adjectives, pathetic and ridiculous and something like of whatever the Soviet Union uh, sells as meat to its citizens is inedible by standards in any other place in the world, things like that. So just what was the Soviet shopping experience like? So shopping is still not a relaxing affair, but, but just to perhaps give you an example of what has changed by the late 60s. There's a very famous comedy sketch by, by a very popular comedian, Arkady Raikin. 
who talks about shortages and, and his sketch is called shortages so or, or the goods in short supply and he talks about shortages as being something um, that, he, that he never defines what it is he's talking about, but he says it has specific, unique taste. It melts in the mouth and it's very hard to get. Nobody else has it, just me. And so, you you know, he talks to his friend, you can come and uh, have a chat with me and, and we will sample this delicacy. You can figure out that this is a, a delicacy, a luxury item. Now, this is very different from the 1930s, 1940s even, and early 50s, and even late 50s, when, never mind delicacies, you know, meat wasn't always easy to get. All kinds of basic goods and necessities were in short supply. Threads, boots, um, kerosene, matches, uh, buttons, you name it. Now, Natalia says, shortages are about something else. A luxury product, you know, something that is very fashionable, perhaps, or if it's an electric household appliance, then it's it's particularly modern or, you know, latest technology and so on. So there, there are these changes which may not be noticeable to a Western observer, but are very tangible for Soviet people experiencing these changes. In his sketch, Riken satirically declared shortages the greatest engine of social relations. Just imagine, he said, how boring Soviet life would be if everyone could buy everything they wanted. You would have what you wanted, me too, and so would the guy over there. All of the relations between those with access and those without would dissolve. In a way, the human relations that developed in response to shortage were the glue that kept society together. Shortages in the Soviet Union still could refer to pretty basic things. In fact, that often it was the basic goods that were in short supply because they were cheap to make, but also did not quite help the uh, enterprises fulfill the plan quickly or, or as easily as some more expensive goods. I asked what kinds of goods could be in short supply. Very simple tableware or towels or rubber boots, not fancy stuff at all. What made these shortages different from before is that availability was scattered. You know, in one place it may be light bulbs, in one place it may be rubber boots, in another place it might be sugar during the jam-making season, um, and so on and so forth. So they were seasonal, uh, and some of them were to do with bottlenecks of distribution as well as problems of production. Now, Soviet authorities weren't blind to all this. By the mid-1960s, it was clear the planned economy needed some kind of shakeup. The result was the so-called Kosygin reforms, named after first deputy premier Alexei Kosygin. In 1967, Time magazine described Kosygin as correct and level-headed, and despite his drab public persona, he had a sharp, dry wit. So Kosygin was a gray Soviet apparatchik on the outside, like the rest of the Brezhnev-era men. But on the inside, new reforms were needed. So Kosygin reforms were quite... Um ambitious in 1965 because they tried to introduce elements of a market economy. The idea was that the state would provide industries incentives to increase their productivity. Bonuses to enterprises that could be distributed in, in monetary 
form. In other words, people would get uh, bonuses if they overfulfill the plan. There was more emphasis on the quality than quantity of goods in that the enterprises had to not only produce uh, the goods they were producing, but also make sure they sold. Now, such tinkering wasn't unknown to the Soviet economy. Soviet reformers were open to limited market mechanisms. The problem was that the Soviet state was very reluctant to let prices be determined by supply and demand. Freeing prices was going too far, if only at a fear of social instability. Now, prices for basics, like food staples and housing, were kept low, while many consumer goods were pricey. And even if a Soviet shopper had the money, and by the late 1960s, more and more did, there was too little to buy and even less if he didn't have connections. I was constantly trying to figure out what a ruble really was worth, and I determined uh, by a whole lot of triangulation that it was like three rubles per dollar. And I could see items A, B, C, D, and E that you'd have to have in your kitchen, and they, and they went well past a month's salary. Here's what Teddy wrote in his diary after visiting the central department store in Novosibirsk, notebook in hand, recording prices. I priced several items, keeping in mind that 90 rubles a month is considered a decent income for a Soviet citizen. The Soviet government is quick to point out that of this 90 rubles, the worker pays very little for rent, nothing for medical care, etc. Fine, let's go shopping with him. Tiny radio, 2 by 2 inches, and carried by a wrist strap, cost 39 rubles 30 kopecks. White dress shirts cost 7 rubles and 9 rubles 20 kopecks. Five relatively tiny apartment-sized ice boxes of the Biryusa design were priced at 250 rubles each. All five were new, all five had been marred in transit, and ugly black marks showed where the porcelain had been scratched off the doors. The sign atop them advertised their automatic temperature regulator. It was in this department that a lady came up to me and asked me what I was writing in my small notebook. She seemed to be satisfied when I simply said prices. So much for the shopping tour of our Soviet worker. The truth is that he doesn't have his entire salary free to buy luxuries. Food, expensive consumer necessities, etc. drain his salary. And then there was another factor. Increasingly, even those Soviet citizens who could afford the luxuries weren't interested in buying just anything the Soviet economy produced. Soviet shoppers had grown fickle, increasingly fickle. people want and what the state is trying to produce or making more effort to produce are goods that are more expensive and goods that are higher quality and these things are in demand in high demand we take an example of the washing machines there was a time in, in the early 60s when any washing machine would be gladly purchased by a soviet urban consumer or a rural consumer Fast forward to the late 60s and early 70s, the washing machines are in the shops. The manual ones, the ones where you manually have to pour the water in and pour the water out. But the problem is that consumers don't want them anymore. They want automatic machines that are not manual. And they're prepared to pay more for these machines and they're prepared to wait. 
a lot of ways Soviet consumers are becoming modern consumers in, in very much a Western understanding of this word, uh, in the sense that they have expectations, they have uh, aspirations, uh, they connect consumer goods with class. But yes, there are trends of people wanting to keep up with the Joneses, if you like. Four, the Soviet dream. I have a new hobby. I collect stories, jokes that I can prove are told between the Russian people. You know, you have to wait 10 years there for delivery after you order an automobile. And so a fellow had finally gotten the money together and was going to buy an automobile. And he went through all the paperwork and everything and finally signed the last paper, laid down his money, and then the man behind the counter said, come back in 10 years and get your automobile. And the man said, morning or afternoon? <laughs> and they, wait, wait. The fellow behind the counter says, well, what difference does it make 10 years from now? And he said, well, a plumber's coming in the morning. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. He's always within arm's reach when it came to American conceit. Reagan fashioned a whole shtick around Soviet jokes when he was on the stump. All his jokes, and there were about four or five in his stable, hit at free speech, political freedom, consumption, many of the tropes I've already mentioned. And Reagan's crowds loved them, because they all hit on what we had and what the Soviets didn't. And the car was a big one. But the car wasn't just another Western object for Soviet people to covet. Like elsewhere in the mid-20th century, the car carried status. It symbolized individuality and freedom. It was the mark of being part of the modern world. And like the American dream, the car was inseparable from the Soviet dream. Car was king. The first question is always, do you own a car? And when I would say my wife has one as well, it was an old secondhand thing. Uh, that, those were the things that they were interested in. This is what they knew. But they knew, obviously, if we had the cars, we must have had good other, other things. They were really hungry for their own transportation. I suppose it represented freedom as well as luxury. Freedom and luxury. In that sense, the car represented the Soviet dream as a whole. You know, the car was one of the hardest aspects of the Soviet dream to achieve. It was a Soviet dream. <laughs> it, it really is um, a, a a focal point of Soviet consumer desires, if you like. Underbody corrosion protection. Each lighter is built to survive, to take on loads. And the roughest of roads. But cars are important, partly because it is it is a symbol of something, you know, it's a symbol of the West, it's a symbol of class, but also more important, I think, it's not so much because the Americans have cars, so we must have cars, but it is the fact that it gives you freedom. Test one at your nearest Lider dealer tomorrow. Cars are, are very important, and it helped that Brezhnev loved cars. He was very fond of Western cars in particular. Richard Nixon tells a funny story about going for a drive with Brezhnev. In June 1973, knowing Brezhnev's fondness for American cars, 
Nixon presented him with a midnight blue 1973 Lincoln Continental with special black velour upholstery at Camp David. Here's how the 1989 TV movie, The Final Days, dramatized the story from Nixon's memoirs. Brezhnev, collector of luxury cars, did not attempt to conceal his delight. He insisted upon trying it out immediately. He got behind the wheel and enthusiastically motioned me into the passenger seat. The head of the Secret Service detail went pale as I climbed in, and we took off down one of the narrow roads that run around the perimeter of Camp David. There's a, uh, this is not such a good section no. here. Brezhnev was used to unobstructed driving in the center lane in Moscow, and I could only imagine what would happen if a Secret Service or a Navy Jeep had suddenly turned a corner into that narrow road. See the sign? Just a little easier. Yeah, no, it, it, no, uh, no, it's no. very, very young. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, please. Uh, and there is not that much freedom in everyday life in the Soviet Union. I mean, not because it's a totalitarian or oppressive state, but because there are restrictions and, and difficulties, practical difficulties. And the car helps you to get around those difficulties. You can go on holiday to the Black Sea coast and not worry about airplane tickets, which are now impossible to, to buy, or, or train tickets, which are difficult to buy. You can just, you know, get into your car and go. Brezhnev's love of cars trickled down to Soviet industry. In 1966, passenger car production quadrupled from 200,000 to 800,000 annually. By 1975, Soviet car factories were producing 1.2 million cars a year, six times what it was in 1965. Still, cars were few and far between when compared to America. Their scarcity on Soviet roads, especially in the center of Moscow, looks strange to Teddy's eyes. I brought home photographs where I leaned out my window in the National Hotel, and here are the cars coming down the street. There are mostly trucks and a handful of cars. I'm telling you, in this one particular photograph, I don't think you, you could see more than a dozen cars. The thing was, achieving parity with American car consumption was never a goal. Many in the USSR argued that mass car ownership was incompatible with Soviet life. It was counter to a society that stressed mass public transportation. Soviet studies saw the ideal level of car ownership was about one car per four people. In the early 1970s, it was hovering around one car for every 50 people. This is compared to the US at the time, where the ratio was close to one to two. The Soviet system generally discouraged car ownership. They were purposefully kept expensive. A small car like the Zhiguli was 3.5 times the average sum of an annual salary. A would-be car owner also had to put 25% down upon order and the full cost on delivery. Then the average wait was four to six years. Of course, cars were expensive, but even more of a problem was the waiting list that you had to join to, to get to your automobile. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the number just continued to grow steadily. You had to be in the right place at the right time, and that could depend upon who you knew, where you worked, how you worked, whether or not you were a party member or not, things like this. All these things could play into these mysterious formulas for getting what you wanted. But connections, what the Russians called blot, connections were huge. I can do this for you if you can get my name high, put my name high on the list. <laughs> 
this is another aspect of what I would call um, what was Soviet about the Soviet dream was working the system. So to give you an example, the first person my age there I knew who got a car, his grandmother had bought it. Um, she was a factory worker. She had survived the Leningrad blockade during the war. And because of her long work for right? Well, she's, she put the deposit down for her grandson. And lo and behold, two or three years later, it was her turn. And they, the, the family, everyone contributed money and Petya got his car. Then there was the absence of infrastructure to support mass car ownership, a network of well-maintained roads, gas and service stations, and spare parts. I'm thinking that at that time, if it had cars, they didn't have roads for them to run on. Uh, so it was probably impractical for the, for the government to, to try to put a, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Uh, it just captured their fancy as it would capture ours. In many respects, car ownership in the USSR was a burden. In the 1980s, two observers of global auto trends wrote that in Russia, they say that owning a car brings joy twice in an owner's life, when it is bought and when it is sold. In between, there is only torture. Cars required a large measure of personal ingenuity. Once you got a car, you are on your own. It's no surprise that car ownership became a distinct marker of class in the USSR. If you had a car, that meant you could A, afford it, B, had the status or connections to get it, and C, the means to maintain it. And of course, the kind of car you drove. Tells others something about your class, social standing, maybe your connections, who you are. So cars are also uh, a bit of an you know, linked to one's identity. And I remember reading memoirs of a writer uh, who recalled that the car in which you drove up to a hotel defined the quality of service you would get at that hotel. Because if, if the administrator saw that you were driving at Jiguli, um, then they would probably treat you with a bit more respect than if you drove as a Parangets, which was a car that the state handed out to war veterans and <laughs> was not very reliable and was very loud. And if you drove up in a Volga, that probably signified that you were part of the party state elite or something very important and the treatment would be even more differential. Mass consumerism wasn't easy. The shortages, the complicated shopping experience, the various hoops to buy and own a car. Not to mention the resulting class disparity in a society that wanted to eliminate it. Given all this, was there a Soviet dream? And if so, what was it? And did it become a reality for people? There are several ways of, uh, or se several options for, for nominations here. One, of course, is to have a car. Um, if, if we're talking about consumerist dreams, another dream is, is a good pair of jeans, ideally American ones. But, but on a more serious note, there, there's a certain in, internalizing of state rhetoric about the improvement of living standards because the, the slogan of continuously improving popular well-being or people's well-being or people's wealth is a recurrent theme in state rhetoric. And very often this is explained as material well-being. 
you know, as, as living standards, as a provision with consumer goods and, and, and so on. Don Raleigh says that when you look at what people wanted from the Soviet system, it wasn't that much different from our own. You know, they wanted to land us a good job, a satisfying job. Uh, they wanted to earn a college degree. They wanted to live well. They wanted to travel abroad. They wanted to obtain decent housing, and this is certainly something very Soviet because of the housing shortage. They wanted close friends. They wanted to find true love. They wanted to have a family. They wanted to raise their children to be decent human beings. And, you know, they wanted to buy a car. What's interesting is if we look at what they were able to achieve, let's say by the late 1970s, when they were around 30 years old, you know, most of them were well on their way to achieving these things. Indeed, much of this doesn't sound too different than what Americans wanted then and now. So what made this dream particularly Soviet? What made it Soviet was how people went about obtaining it. <laughs> I often through hook and crook, through connections, through uh, personal connections and this sort of thing. Um, uh, so they knew how to work the system pretty much. For some reason, I keep coming back to the last lines of Arkady Rykin's comedy skit about shortages when I think of Soviet consumerism. Rykin asks, is life without some shortage good? No, he says, it's disgusting. Let there be abundance, let there be everything, but please let something be missing. Next time on Teddy Goes to the USSR, Teddy talks about race. Sometimes they were pretty blunt. Why are you still lynching blacks in the United States? Or there's one particular tourist who recalled in her memoir that she's asked almost randomly, have you ever seen a lynching? Which is just a kind of a weird question to ask. They were holier than thou with the visitors. They, they had every right to explore that, that uh, subject, but they weren't interested in exploring. Well, American propagandists considered race our biggest vulnerability internationally. Not only aware of segregation, but I saw the, 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 the rotten fruits of segregation is a, a real sore point that communist propagandists, you know, are having a field day with. Anti-racism was one of the central tenets of Marxism-Leninism. Also, this anti-racism is very practical. It sort of feeds the needs of Soviet foreign policy. In that sense, I think it, it was just about propaganda. There wasn't necessarily a desire to really fully understand, especially if it didn't fit into this sort of Marxist-Leninist you know, sort of framework. You know, to become a new Soviet man or a new Soviet woman really meant to become an anti-racist. Propaganda is such a... such a strange concept. The violence of American racism, King's assassination fulfilled all that. And the argument that I used to best advantage is that despite the problems for our black friends and neighbors, and they were many, blacks in America owned more automobiles 
than existed in the Soviet Union. A lot of them were very moved by the civil rights movement and by what they saw and reflected on this, you know, in great depth. I think the Soviets were very ambivalent, to put it mildly, about uh, Martin Luther King, for example. So the first comment says something like, hardly innocuous example of recent Soviet propaganda. And then somebody else says, sadly though, not unjustified. Uh, so I was pretty prepped for any questions that I got on my, on my tour of the Soviet Union. Malcolm X, uh, they didn't like him. They are proving that American democracy American freedom is really bankrupt. You know, you really have to go through this with a toothbrush and sort of separate uh, the ideology, the propaganda value, the, uh, the hypocrisy uh, from something that was genuinely good. And I think there was something genuinely good about it. So it's complex. I mean, that's why I like it. It's, it's just messy. It's, it's, it defies any attempt to portray the Soviet Union in a black-white, you know, sort of manner. Teddy Goes to the USSR is written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Thanks to Laura Belmonte, Dina Feinberg, Natalia Chenershova, and Don Raleigh for their participation. Special thanks to Teddy Rowe for sharing his story, diary, and photographs. Voiceovers were done by Gabe Kramer and Trevor Erlocker. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions, Richie Everett, Kevin McLeod, and Elliot Holmes. Funding for Teddy Goes to the USSR was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and monthly patrons of the SRB podcast. If you want to learn more about Teddy's trip and the Soviet Union, go to the series website at teddy2ussr.com. And if you're enjoying Teddy Goes to the USSR, please consider becoming a patron of the SRB podcast so we can do more narrative audio like this. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash blog. And you can follow Teddy Goes to the USSR on your favorite podcast app.